All right, uh, let me start today's sermon with a true story. And this story is going to relate to the passages of Scripture we're going to look at. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture today. And the story is going to relate to our focus today. So let me tell you about Andrew. Andrew was born in New York City in uh, 1959 to a secular Jewish family. And in his memoir titled uh, A Great Good Thing, it was published in 2016, he, he tells of the traumatic and tumultuous childhood he had, specifically his relationship with his father. Andrew was a very unhappy young boy. His parents, his, well, his father in particular, would ridicule him and would explode at him with just vitriol and aggressive violence at times. Neither of his parents really believed in God. They, they were not religious really at all. But Andrew's father was still a very proud Jew, still very, very proud of his Jewish heritage. And he really put a lot of pressure on Andrew to actually go through his bar mitzvah. But on the other side of it, Andrew decided, I'm going to reject all of this, and actually threw away all of the gifts, which was thousands and thousands worth of, of dollars, threw it all away because he wanted to reject all of that. Andrew's father was a very rageful person, very bitter. He had a kind of a psychotic mindset or a paranoid mindset. He believed that everybody was jealous of him. He had a particular animosity towards Andrew compared to his, uh, Andrew's brothers, and he would pick on him. And Andrew developed a coldness towards his own dad as a way of coping with the sarcasm and the abuse that he had to put up with. Because his childhood and his environment was so traumatic and chaotic, he retreated inward and he became a daydreamer. He would disassociate with his surroundings and just imagine things, just create stories in his own mind, and he became obsessed with stories, actually. Early on, one of the stories he became obsessed with was the story of Scrooge. It was his first connection and introduction, actually, to the Christian faith. And at age 14, Andrew actually wrote his first novel. It wasn't apparently very good, but at least he banged out a whole novel. At the age of 15, he was really trying to be a tough guy, so he starts drinking hard liquor and taking drugs occasionally, sleeping around a bit. And all of this was to try to find who he was. He didn't know how to live life. He didn't know what his identity should be. And then at the age of 19, he actually managed to sell his first story. Well, his father really struggled with this. His father couldn't cope with his son succeeding in an area like this. And so Andrew would be typing in his bedroom, typing stories, writing novels, trying to, to make it as an author. And his father would hear outside his room. He'd hear him typing. And so he'd burst into his room. And he'd start thrashing around and clashing around and start making noise and disrupting him. And Andrew realized pretty quickly, I have to avoid my dad at all costs, especially as it relates to my career. He's trying to sabotage me for some unknown reason I, I can't perceive. And so Andrew learned to write in a notepad, so it was quiet, so his dad wouldn't know when he was writing. And then when, once his dad left, he would then type it up uh, on a typewriter. It was a sad way to live. He ended up getting into Berkeley, though, which was a big deal. But he was absolutely lost and depressed. He was just alone 
in the darkness of his room, trying to write, trying to learn, trying to make it as an author, but he felt like he was going mad. He was isolated, so he tried to break himself out of his isolation and try to spend more time with friends and eventually met a great girl and they got married, but this deep pain persisted. He would get angry for no apparent reason, moody for no discernible reason. His depression got worse and worse, and he began to believe that he was a secret genius that nobody else could really understand. He would find himself in his car on the side of the road, and he wouldn't remember how he got there. And he'd have to go and find a phone and call his wife and have her talk him through how to get back. He was so disoriented and lost and confused. He, his writing became more obscure and detached from reality. He was a hypochondriac, thinking he had all kinds of sicknesses and diseases that he didn't have. Then his brother one day had a nervous breakdown, collapsed, ended up seeing a therapist. And after talking to his brother, he started to face the reality of how broken he was and how painful his own life. And, and the trauma of his childhood was finally catching up with him. And so Andrew started seeing a therapist. And this counseling, it helped to begin with. It definitely helped, but it was a brutal process. And tragically, after a year of seeing a counselor, Andrew was sitting there in the dark of his room. At this point, he and his wife had two daughters. And he's sitting there in his room alone, drinking some more hard liquor, listening to the radio. Radio's on in the background. And he was contemplating whether or not to take his own life. He had gone to the place where he was so lost and struggling, he felt like a complete burden to his family. He was in complete despair. Let me pause the story there and give you the conclusion to the story at the end of the sermon. As I said, it relates to our passages of Scripture today. It relates to our focus today. So we're in this series right now called being, uh, named, titled Being the Church, Being the Church. So we're on week eight, I think. I think there's a few more weeks of this. So hopefully you, you know, we're on episode eight. Hopefully you've enjoyed the, the journey so far. We're looking at how do you create a biblical church, the kind of church that Jesus came to create. And today we want to look at the subject matter of biblical counsel, how to give and receive biblical counsel. And then we want to relate that to the idea of Christian counseling and also look at the subject of coaching as well. Now, the Bible is all in complete favor of us being emotionally stable and mentally stable as well. God is a God of reason, and He's a God of compassion. God has created us with our emotions. And so, with the explosion in our culture, especially amongst Christians, with the explosion of counseling... I mean, it's rare nowadays. If I meet somebody, I'm looking for the person, you know, I'm surprised if I meet somebody who hasn't had some kind of therapy, some kind of counseling now, especially younger generations. But with the explosion of this, and also with, with coaching and things like this, as Christians, we, we need to look at it, discern it, look at it with a biblical lens, and ask ourselves, how do we, how do we engage from that? How can that be helpful to us? Let me pray real quick. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your spirit, and I pray today you would teach us how to be a church that is infused with biblical counsel 
and that we're able to be those who seek counseling when we need it and get coaches when we need them. Lord, that we will be humble enough and wise enough to do that, but also to be those who can help others as we grow and learn. Lord, would you do your work? And anyone here who doesn't know you today, God, show them the way. Show them all the way to Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Um, where did I get to? I lost my place. Let's, Benedict, go ahead and put up the first verse that we have here. This will trigger my memory here. Uh, Psalm 32, 8 says this. This is the biblical explanation of giving counsel. This is what the Bible means by the idea of giving counsel to someone. It means, uh, David writes this, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So to receive biblical counsel is to personally have a more godly person in our lives who is teaching us, training us, they're mentoring us in some way, they're, they're helping us, they're, they're instructing us, they're giving direct observation to us, they're, they're looking into our lives. And when we receive biblical counsel, I mean, you could call it discipleship, you could call it spiritual growth, there's all kinds of things you could call it, different labels to put on it. When we receive from somebody in this way, we receive instruction from a more mature Christian, what, that, what happens is we accelerate our spiritual growth, and by God's grace, we're able to avoid making really stupid mistakes that we might just, in our youthfulness especially, make. Because the idea is somebody else has traveled this path. Somebody else has gone down this pathway. And so if I receive from them, I can receive collective wisdom to help me avoid the foolishness that many people fall into just because they won't listen or they don't have a mentor. They're not willing to receive biblical counsel. Now, this description, this is, this is what should happen in churches, in the Christian life, discipleship, spiritual growth, biblical counsel. This description is not exactly what happens in counseling or Christian counseling or even coaching. When we think about counseling today, we think about, and this is, this is what it is, it's looking to the past, looking back at our experiences and trying to reconcile those things, trying to get healing from difficulties we've experienced in the past so that we might find freedom in the future or in the present and, in, and ongoing into the future. And the way this works to be biblical means that a counselor, of course, they need to themselves have a biblical worldview. They believe scripture, but that the philosophy of counseling that is being used is using a framework from scripture. Because not every counselor is created equal, not every process or type of therapy or philosophy of therapy is created equal. And so for it to be biblical means it's drawing from God's word and the counselor themselves is saying, yeah, that's our greatest authority. That's where everything uh, is in submission to, uh, uh, to be that way. And, and, and counseling in our day and age, what hap- the way it works is the counselor looks towards the person who's being counseled and they, they're, they're examining, they're asking questions, they're, they're trying to figure out what does this person need help with but it's really led by the person. Somebody goes to a counselor because they say, I've got this problem. I need help with this. I've figured out you know, I can't get a breakthrough in this area. I've got this emotional problem or I just can't cope with this issue. And so you, you go to a counselor to deal with that. And so it's, the counselor is following the lead of the patient, as it were, looking at 
how do I address the things they're concerned about and dig around in there and help them get clarity on, uh, on all of that. And um, an effective counselor, somebody who's really gifted at this, can really give somebody an amazing breakthrough. Even if, even if you know, someone doesn't have a Christian worldview or doesn't have a you know, Christian philosophy to their counseling, as we face our emotions and deal with the pain of the past, man, it can be really freeing. We bring resolution to those things. And then similar idea with, with, with coaching. Coaching's exploded in our day and age. People get coaching for all kinds of things now. It's kind of a, you know, kind of a different, different agenda to, to coaching. People get coaching typically in a professional context, but also in a personal context. Sometimes people are like, I'm not very effective in my life. I want to you know, get better strategies, get, get more motivation in my life, and try and build uh, a more effective system or, or more effective uh, processes in my life. I just want to get a coach to help me, somebody who can kind of give me some advice and some, um, some instructions on those kinds of things. And there's a, there's a place of both of these things in our life. I found that when I've talked to people, that people might start with counseling and deal with some of those emotional things. But if you continue to want to get help, once you've work through a lot of that stuff, you can transition to flip to coaching. And typically, pe- people don't do both of those things. Like a counselor won't be a coach, and a coach won't be a counselor. Every so often, you'll find the rare person who does both. But they're, they're two different kind of realms, uh, and both have their utilities and have their usefulness. God cares about our emotions. He's interested in our pain, and he wants to heal our pain. I think the Apostle Paul says this, uh, no, he doesn't, no, in God's word, Isaiah 9, 6, God uh, is called Wonderful Counselor, it's in the name, one of the names of God, Wonderful Counselor, Psalm uh, 10, verse 17, uh, tells us that God hears the desire of the afflicted, and that he will incline his ear, Psalm 147, verse 3 says, he heals the brokenhearted, and binds up their wounds, God wants to protect the downtrodden from turning back in shame, that's Psalm 74. So we see in all of these things, God, God is not just aware of our emotions. He's not just given them to us and aware of them. He's not just interested in even in, in healing them and, and restoring them or redeeming us uh, from, the, from, the, from the painful ones. God's, it, it goes beyond that. God remembers our emotions and all the pains we've, we've ever faced. I think it's Psalm 56 says this. Let's go to the next one. Any second now. Psalm 56 verse 8. Uh, David says this. He says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now think about the, the level of intentionality here by God. He numbers our anxious moments. So there, you know, think about at nighttime, right? Like, put that back up for one second, will ya? Wrong way. There we go. You have kept count of my tossings. You think about, you can't sleep at night. It's flipping on one side, back to the other side. I'm tossing and turning. I just, my anxious moments. Well, God is tallying those up. God is, is that concerned about your emotional well-being. He's keeping track of that, that he's keeping track of he says, you put my tears in a bottle that God has collected. Every tear we've ever shed, God has been there to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember this and to, to honor it because I, it's, it matters to me that God's, God's collected 
that and says, are they not in your book? I think of like God's almost got his, like, his own journal for each one of us, and he's, he's, he's writing it down, saying this, this matters. Now, the level of intentionality here indicates to us deep concern, deep care and concern. I mean, how wonderful is this, that the God of the universe pays such unique attention to each one of us. This doesn't mean that our emotions are the most important thing about us. They're definitely important. It doesn't mean our emotions are always right or always valid. It doesn't mean that. But what it means is it means because God cares about us so much, He's also interested in our emotions. Because think about emotions like this. They're like a dashboard on your car. Sometimes those lights turn on, and you're like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, no. Especially the check engine light, right? That's the one, right? The other ones, if you're a new car owner, you know, it doesn't take you too long. You look in the manual. You have to look it up or look it up on YouTube, whatever, YouTube video for everything nowadays. You look it up somewhere, and you're like, all right, now I didn't know what it was. Now I know, what it, now I know that's the signal. But the check engine light... Years ago, I bought a tool. You could plug it directly into your, into your engine, your, your computer that's in your engine or whatever, and it'll give you the codes. And then you have to go to your manual and look up the codes. And then you figure out exactly what it is. Or you can take it to a mechanic. And they'll hook it up, and they'll, they'll diagnose it. They'll tell you, oh, this, this light indicates this problem, that we've got to do this, and this is the work. This is how much it's going to cost. That's, that's how emotions work. You, you get a check engine light come on, you're like, I don't know. I don't know what this is. I'm getting a signal. There's some signal happening. And then you, it takes time. You've got you to you trace. You've got to go back to the manual. You've got to talk to an expert, somebody who's can, has studied these things and knows more about these kinds of things. The way, the way counseling works is you start by looking backwards. In order to move forwards in your life, in order to go forward, you have to go backwards first. And we don't want to do that. It's discomforting. It's painful. It's hard to face. You know, we, that's why people will even block things out, right? Certain memories are so traumatic that you actually can't even remember them, some people. They're so, they're so painful. That, but, but the only way to deal with them is to go back. You don't want to stay there. You don't go back to stay there or wallow in that or to make that part of your identity and say, like, that's who I am. No, you don't. You, but you have to plan a visit. Maybe you have to plan multiple visits. Say so we have to go back several times. To, to, to dig around, to, to figure out what's, what's back there. Because God knows that, that we have to be in tune with our past, with our weaknesses, with our limitations, with the things that we've gone through. We have to be acquainted with them. Because if we're not, we actually won't understand how much we need God. See, see, if the Christian faith for us is a, a self-improvement project where it's like, hey, I'm just trying to get better. I'm just trying to move forward. I'm just trying to grow. I'm just, it's all about me just doing better. Uh, that's a, that can easily, well, it typically goes into some kind of self-righteous, I'm doing kind of a bit better than everyone else. I'm making progress, feeling great about myself. The Christian faith is kind of very, it's very different to that, actually. The Christian faith is, I got to look at, I got to, honestly, deeply look at my own flaws and failings, because until I do, I won't understand how much I need God and how much only God can set me free. I cannot set myself free. I need God's help and God's power to set me free. Apostle Paul, he, he got to the point, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he's boasting in this. So he says, but uh, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content 
with my weaknesses. He's come to terms with it. When I am weak, then I am strong. Now, he's, he's not in the context here. He's not talking about biblical counseling or going back and look at childhood trauma. That's not the exact context. But the principle, I think, can be applied that the, in all of our weaknesses, all of our setbacks, all of the troubles we've faced in life, we have to look at them honestly, get a proper assessment of them, in order for us to understand what they are and how desperately we need God's power and God's help to be set free from them. We're complicated, aren't we? I know I'm pretty complicated sometimes. You complicated? The, hum- the human heart is, man, human beings are so annoying sometimes because it's like we're, we're so contradictory and hypocritical. We're complicated. You know, the, the heart is, is a difficult thing to discern. Emotions. I remember we got a list of, of emotions, and I'm reading through and thinking, ah, some of these words I haven't even heard before. What are these things? And you're like, you've got this feeling in here, and you're like trying to pick a word for it, and you're like, I don't even know where to begin. What's, I didn't grow up this way. How do you, how do you, how do you figure this out? How do you do this? So the, the heart can be, or, or the, heart, the heart can be described like, like, like the ocean, like deep waters. Think about those who uh, discovered where the Titanic is. You know, it was only until recently that we didn't know where it was, even for years. Obviously, we had no idea. We didn't have the technology to, to, to find where it had gone down. We knew it had gone down. We didn't know where it was. But it took a lot of expert time. And people, even recently, maybe you read the story or heard the, the tragic story of people in a submersible that went down and it imploded because uh, they, they didn't have the proper equipment. And they perished. They died in that. And it, it, maybe that, that, there's an illustration there, right? The deeper you go, the more help you need, the more expertise you need, right? You, um, but, but think about it, uh, the human heart is, it's almost like, that's why it's so hard to face it. That's why you, you, you don't want to do it, because it's like diving in Lake Michigan, you know, in January. It's like, I don't want to do that. That's, it's terrifying, it's freezing, and, and, and I'm not going to get very far. If I try and, try and swim, how far am I going to get? It's, this is so hard. The, there's a parallel the Bible draws between the human heart being like deep waters in Proverbs 20, verse 5. It says, the purpose and a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. So God in his grace gives certain people, what we call a man of understanding, God gives certain people wisdom and insight to swim down into the shipwrecks of our past, find the treasure that's been buried in that shipwreck, the things that have been lost, that have died, that shouldn't have been lost, that shouldn't have died, that, we shouldn't, have, that shouldn't have been taken from us, or that we shouldn't have given up. There are, there are people of understanding who, who know how to do this. They know if it's so deep, they know we've got to take a submersible, and it's got to be built a certain way. We've got certain tools and certain things to do this, and they can, help, they can work with us to recover the treasure that's been lost. The, the, the beauty and the design that God had put in us, it always should have come out that was repressed, suppressed, hurt somehow, and a man of understanding can, can, can help recover that. that, that that's, that's essentially what good counseling, good biblical counseling, that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to swim into those depths, places where we can't go ourselves, where it's so dark, you've got to take a light, you've got to take special equipment, you've got to, and it takes time, you've got to go back a few times to recover those treasures that have been lost, it shouldn't have been lost. Now, counseling used to be, with some Christians, it's maybe a little controversial sometimes. I think it's less and less that way nowadays for good reason. But what probably the controversy for a lot of Christians is not if you get counseling, but, but what kind of counseling you get or, or what kind of counselor you see. That's really where the discussion lies, and that is an important 
discussion to have. And just to say, if you ever have a counselor that you don't think is really working for you, really on the same page with you, or is, is really being beneficial to you, you're in charge of that process. So you find a new counselor, all right? Uh, coaching, on the other hand, is, I'm going to talk less about this today, but I think it's still important because there is an explosion of this in our culture, but I also think it's a very helpful tool, especially for Christians, to have a coach at times, to have a mentor in, in your life at times. There's no controversy over coaching. I've never heard a Christian say, oh, you've got to watch out for those coaches. I don't know about them. Coaching focus, you know, where counseling focuses on emotions, coaching focuses on practical matters, right? So I'm trying to, trying to you know, experiment with different strategies of how to be more effective in my life. But let me just say this. If our goals in life and our direction in life is not sub, submitted to God, and it doesn't matter how effective we become, or how focused we become, or how determined we become, or how much support or accountability we get, it doesn't matter. First of all, we've got to have our goals submitted to God. Otherwise, coaching will just be building upon a wrong foundation, essentially, in that way. So in my story, in my journey of this, I shared this recently, but I'll recap some of this. This journey started maybe 13 years ago in my life. And my wife and I read a book by Pete Scazzaro, I think Emotionally Healthy Church and then Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, read those books. And that started us off on the journey of emotional health. And, okay, we need, we need some help. We're, we're struggling in certain ways. I'm struggling in certain ways. She's struggling in certain ways. We're struggling together. We, we, we need to get some more help. And so as we began the process of Christian counseling, um, the first guy we saw was, was helpful in some ways, but then we felt like, okay, we're not quite on the same page. Let's look for somebody else. And we ended up found, found this awesome lady, really helped us. And I, I realized very early on in this process of, process of counseling that I'd never been shown, ever, never been shown how to properly resolve something. So if there was a conflict or if there was, whether that's with a person or there's an internal conflict, there's, there's something going on, there's pressure, there's tension, there's something disjointed in my own life. I'm struggling in some way and I can't quite get through it. I've never really had anyone ever sit down and be like, here's a way that you, you need to bring resolution to that. You've you got to work on that. And the process of, my eyes open to that. And, and so counseling helped me firstly to understand that that, what that was. <laughs> I remember coming out of one counseling session and kind of scratching my head thinking, I don't know that I could think back to any example in my life where I've actually properly resolved something. Normally, you just sweep it under the rug, be like, that's in the past, forget about it, we're done with it, move on. I, I didn't realize, actually, you've you got to look at it. You've got you to take a look at it. You don't stay there. It doesn't become your identity, but you've got to look at it. That's what wisdom indicates. And so now at the point, fast forward, I've seen, I think, four different counselors, two coaches, and it's like, you know, there are seasons of that. I hope to, I'm not doing that right now, but I hope to do that again. I think there are other, you know, there, there are times when that's, that's helpful. I don't think it's something you do all the time. But depending on the level of pain and trauma, maybe it's for an extended period for some people. Now, that's biblical counseling and, and coaching. What about so the idea of biblical counsel, right, to, this is now different. I guess counseling and coaching could maybe fit as one facet under the idea of biblical counsel, the idea of, of, of receiving and giving in the church, because we're not trained counselors here, some may be, if it's their profession, but 
Typically in churches, you know, more and more people are going down that path, which is great. But the idea of being able to receive and give counsel to each other is more overarching in the sense that we're to, our, our entire life is to come under the alignment of God's word. So what you won't get from seeing a counselor is they may not exhort you, admonish you, correct you, reproof you. That was hard for me to say for some reason. Rebuke you. We talked about humble confrontation last week. They may not do that with you because they're here to explore your emotions. But in the church context, you might get a bit of that sometimes. You might get some pushback at times. It's a bit, it's a bit different. And, and so we're looking at the idea of biblical counsel is, is a much broader concept where sometimes you have people pushing on you in ways that well, I hadn't, that's a little, less, a little uncomfortable. It's not just, you know, a bond you form with a counselor can be, can be very powerful because their job is just to listen and ask questions, and give a little bit of guidance here or there, and give you some instruction. But biblical counsel is supposed to be my, my whole life. You know, this is, this is more of like a, a parental mentorship relationship where I'm looking to somebody who's more mature than me, someone who's further along than me to, to help me, whereas counseling is I'm looking to a professional guide. See, the difference between those two things is very important to realize. A counselor is a professional guide, and it's, a, it's a, a transactional relationship where I'm paying for a service, right? It's this professional guide, and there's a time and a place, and that can be very good. But in the church context, we're looking at this as parental mentors. This is not a transactional thing where we're paying money to each other to help each other in this way. We're, we're, and it's different in this way that a counselor is being is following the, the, the patient. In biblical counsel, it's a little bit reversed, where the, the mentor is actually leading the mentee. It's, it's, it's more of a leader-follower, more of a discipleship paradigm. We have to understand the difference between these two things. There's a place for all of them, but understanding the difference of them is very important to us because we have to understand this. Counseling focuses on the emotional pain of the past, focuses on our trauma, that we experienced as children. And what we have to understand is, the lie of our time is this. Everything about you can be explained by all the trauma you experienced as a child. Is that true? No. A lot of who you are, and some key aspects of who you are, can be explained by that. Of course we're shaped by our environment and by the things that have happened to us in the past. Of course we are. But to say you're, everything about you is a result of what... You, you've experienced, the pain you experienced as a kid is not true. We do not come into this world as blank slates, right? Societies have already worked through that problem, all right? Everyone knows this is not true now. People used to think you come in as a blank slate. You're just completely innocent. It's like you, if, you, if anyone believes that, they, they've never been around children, all right? <laughs> we all know it's true. So... In our, in our day and age, we, 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 we got this a little bit flipped around that, okay, my, I have to face my pain because then I get healing. I can, I can forgive others. I can get free from it. But also, the message of the Christian faith is this, is I have to face my own sin as well. Yes, I've been sinned against. Can't be ignored. Shouldn't be ignored. Maybe that's what the church, maybe in the past, has done a really bad job of, is actually seeing that. But what we cannot forget is, I bear responsibility for what I've done. 
my responses matter, my attitudes matter, my actions matter, and I have to fully embrace that to come to terms with that. So as I'm receiving, whether I'm receiving counseling or coaching, what we can't do is we can't think, oh, that's the same as discipleship. No, no, they're, they're components, they're, they're an aspect of it. In the church, that's where we get discipleship. That's where we get that parental mentorship. That's where we get the full array of receiving God's counsel. You know, the apostle Peter wasn't trained in psychology. Wasn't a, a, a physio, you know, some kind of psychologist or psychiatrist. Or, but Jesus said to, to Peter, he said, feed my sheep. If you know Peter, he's probably one of the more emotionally unstable disciples. You know, he's cutting ears off, you know, saying ridiculous things, jumping out of boats, you know, just, yeah, it's a good crowd today. So, Peter, so, you know, if I was there and Jesus is telling Peter, feed my sheep, I might be like, Jesus, are you, do you want to pick somebody else? Shouldn't we pick somebody who's a little more emotionally healthy, someone who's got it a bit more together? I think the fact that Jesus said that to Peter. He said, he said, feed my sheep. And he gave him the, the keys to the kingdom, as it were. He said, on, this, on your, your confession of faith, you know, is, is the kingdom going to kind of be built? You know, this is amazing things Jesus said to Peter. Like, that should give us confidence and permission that we can all play a part in this process. We, we all can. We all, we all can. We don't have to be super advanced. Any, any growth that we experience, well, well, that's something we can help somebody else with then. And, you know, growth is slow, right? You plod along. It's only until you look back when you're like, oh, I'm not who I used to be. I, you can't see growth at the time it's really happening until later on. Sometimes you have, there are times we have a dramatic leap forward. That does happen. But most growth is slow and steady. Over the years, you build up, and then you look back, and you go, oh, I'm a really different person. Something's changed. And then you're able to say, I can help other people with that. That's a, I, I can pour into others. And that's, that's the kind of expectation we should have. We, we shouldn't allow the, um, that to hold us back. We've got some verses here. got a list of verses here, I think. Let's go with this. We shouldn't disqualify ourselves. Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. And Paul also tells Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, that's great. So Paul's telling Timothy, Hey, I'm giving you all this instruction. Think about it. But also, God's going to help you. We've got to have confidence that God is here. He can equip us. He can help us to help others. But I will say it's those who have a, the greatest proven track record, those who have been through some battles, those in the church who have got some years under their belts, some feathers in their caps. They, they can say, hey, we've, we've emerged through some of the trials of life, and we can help pour into you. We can help you face those things as well. Those are the ones we, we need to look to. It's actually, it tends to be those who have already gone through counseling or gone through coaching or emerged from or have been those who have received a lot of biblical counsel. They're the ones who say, I'm hungry to learn. I want to grow. They've already gone down the pathway. Those are the, make the best mentors and those that we can receive from. So we want to aim to receive from those people, but also aim to become those people as well. Because how can we give what we haven't received? How can we give what we haven't received? We, we, we can't do it. So if you haven't received it, then we need to go get it. Sometime we, some, some people might feel a particular calling in this regard and 
counseling, therapy, you might say, yeah, I'm going to get a professionally trained in that. That could be a good pathway. If, if that's an interest of yours, seek that. We need, the world needs more counselors and more coaches and you know, people get trained in all these kind of things. That can be a good thing to do. But whether or not you go down that pathway, as the Christian church, we've all got to be, there, there are some basic things that we've all got to be growing in, in regard to this. I think it's uh, James chapter 1 says this. It says, to be, the way to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now, a good counselor and a good coach, there'll be, there'll be someone who's trained to be quick to hear and slow to speak. But this is written to all Christians. This is written to all Christians. So we want to be those who are we're quick to listen, to, to, to try to understand what's going on, and slow to respond. I'm personally I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to get that right. I know we're all working on it. Um, let's go with this next verse as well. We've got this next one up here. Proverbs 15 also says, A soft answer turns away wrath. Now, the principle behind this is that our tone and how we how we treat people, how we interact people with people, will indicate their response to us. So a good counselor, of course, sometimes we might make fun of counselors for speaking in very soft tones and tell me your feelings and, you know, people make fun of these things. But there is something really important to be said for how we talk to each other and the kind of softness that we approach each other with. How can we expect people to open up to us? if we don't actually take that tact, that we, we, we communicate to people that we, we care about them and that we're building a relationship of trust together. As we are slow to speak and we're quick to hear, as we're using that, that counseling soft approach to say, hey, we want to hear from people, we've got to pay attention to what they say. Jesus says this in Matthew uh, 15, I think it is. Mm, there, there we go. What comes uh, out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So as we listen to each other, here's what we have to do is we have to actually pay attention. If we're going to give good biblical counsel and receive good biblical counsel, we actually have to listen to each other's words. It's so common for us to hear what we think someone is saying and to filter things through our own perceptions rather than listening to what the person's really saying. It's funny, the more that we actually keep asking people questions or just get them talking, people will tell you everything. People will sometimes tell you their whole life story. If only we would just listen. But we can have filters. We hear certain words are triggering or certain phrases are triggering. We think, oh, they must mean this. And instead of being wise enough to say, what did you mean by that? What does that mean to you? And getting understanding because words betray us, right? Words betray us. So, so to be wise in this is to, when we listen to people's words, we actually can get to their heart. We can get to their heart. Just listening well to people, not thinking about the response ahead of time, but actually focusing on what are they saying because that's the window into the heart. Jesus says that out of the mouth. The heart speaks. You can learn so much about people just by the words they say or the words they don't say, by the things they tell you, the things they don't tell you. This, there have been certain people in my life, I remember this, years ago, this one girl, every conversation I had with her, she would always talk about how many degrees she had. And I was always like, I think that really matters to her, how many degrees she has, you know? It's like, you know, every time, it's like, oh, I already heard, I've heard this plenty of times before, you know? Uh, many, many examples of, of this in my own life. Of, I remember this other guy I met, he, he, he couldn't, start, he just always would talk about 
what he was earning, what other people were earning. It was all about salaries and comparison of salaries. And this person in the same position earns this salary and this other person. Every time I talk to him, same conversation every time. I'm thinking, okay, I think this matters to this guy. Some, something, this is, this is a big thing for him. I don't know this guy. Why is he telling me this? Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. This is how we all grow in giving each other biblical counsel, that we try to understand each other in order to give that instruction and that help to each other. We do it humbly. We do it humbly. But ultimately, we're bringing people back to God's Word. So Hebrews 4 is that verse there. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A good question that we ask all the time is, yeah, that's great, I love that, tell me more about that, let me hear that. But at the end of the day, we ask, well, what does God's word say about that? What does God's word say about that? We're bringing ourselves always in alignment with God's, that's the the greatest authority in our lives. We've also got to pray. A bad counselor won't pray. A good counselor will. Biblical counseling. We should have counselors that, that pray and James 5 tells us the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. But also uh, 1 Corinthians 14 also tells us this. It says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So we need to be those who are people of prayer, but also people who are listening for the voice of the Spirit. Because you can spend years going through the systems of men or counseling processes and be helped by that. And those can be positive and good things. But you know what also can happen? By the power of the Spirit, through, pe- through prayer, you can be set free in a moment. Good counseling will rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to seek breakthrough with prayer as well. Now, I think there's a lot of even Christian counseling today that tries to take the Holy Spirit out of this process. And we need to find counselors and coaches that are, that are in tune listening because sometimes we don't know enough to explain what's going on. Sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to shine a light on it and say, this is the issue. And suddenly you realize, I couldn't see it, but the Holy Spirit could see it. Of course he could see it. As we receive, as we give, as we learn to biblically counsel each other and give each other instruction and advice, as we grow into mentorship roles and as we progress in all these things and as we're receiving of it ourselves, we have to also have a bias towards action. We can't just be those who always sit around talking about their feelings. There's a time and a place for that. There's a process to go through with that. But we also must have a bias towards activating what we're learning. And this is one of the measurements I will use sometimes with people. If, if, if we decide, hey, you need to take this step or this is the thing you need to do, but then people aren't willing to do it, then, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to keep discipling you or pouring into you because you're not actually, you don't actually want to change. You just want to stay in the past, stay in your pain. You want to, and you can get addicted to pain, right? Like people can be addicted to anger because you get a dopamine hit from anger, so it can be addictive. Same way, you can get a lot of validation and attention from pain, so you get addicted to it, so you only want to stay there. So we have to have a bias towards action. Okay, if I've identified what needs to change, what step do I need to take? What's the next? That can be a powerful question to ask. Okay, now that we've identified this, now that this is the issue, what step do you need to take? What is that? Jesus says this in Luke 6. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, 
I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep. You've got to go deep. Who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. Our goal is to help each other build lives that can withstand any storm. And the way you do it is not just by sitting in a counselor's chair and just talking, just listening, just sharing your emotions and feelings. There's a time, there's a place for that. We all have to do that. But at the end of the day, as Christians, we have to have a foundation of obedience. I am a child of God, and I live to obey the commandments of God. God is good, God is righteous, God is powerful. He knows everything. And if I'm not willing to do what he wants me to do, I'm building my life on a shallow, weak foundation, and when the storms come, I'll be destroyed. I can't be addicted to my pain. I have to be free from my pain. A well-known Christian author and Christian counselor, Ed Welsh, said this. Here we go. Trauma breaks life into pieces. When those pieces become reorganized around the person and work of Jesus, a new story begins to emerge. And this is what happened with our friend, Andrew that we talked about at the beginning. What's the conclusion of Andrew's story? If you remember his story, traumatic childhood. He's sitting alone with his hard liquor and his radio show on in the background contemplating. He's got a wife, he's got two daughters contemplating, is my life worth anything? Should I end it all now? And in that moment on the radio, he heard these words. They were interviewing a baseball player. And it was a baseball player who was known to have really bad knee problems. And he couldn't run very fast. I think he's the guy who was the catcher, right? But he hit a great ball, and he had to make it around to get the run, and he made it. And they they said, we've never seen you run so fast before. How did you do it? And he said, sometimes you have to run through the pain. Sometimes you have to run through the pain. And that's what Andrew heard on the radio. And in that moment, he knew God was talking to him. He suddenly sensed there's, there's something divine about this. God is speaking to me through this thing, and it gave him the courage. It gave him the strength to help keep going with therapy, with counseling, to stick with it, because there was a breakthrough right around the corner. Counseling changed everything for him. It was a game changer. He learned through his therapist that the destructive habits that he had in his life, where he kept self-sabotaging all these things, he learned that those things were not who he was. He learned that the misery that he was experiencing and the pain, the the emotional pain he had, he learned that that those were wounds that he'd experienced. So those things weren't who he was. They were wounds. And because they were wounds, they could be fixed. That was the light bulb that went off. Those aren't who I am. They're wounds. They can be fixed. And so his counselor led him through a process, levels, breakthrough after breakthrough, healing after healing. It took a long time. It took years working through some of this stuff. But every level he'd get to, he'd, chains would be broken, freedom would be, he'd get a new insight, a new revelation into something, and it would, it would give him a greater sense of joy. And he, slowly, as, as the layers were being peeled back, he suddenly was finding that he was becoming the person he always should have been through this process of counseling. His wife, as well, a trusted advisor of his, a trusted person to give him counsel and advice, listening to him, questioning 
him, talking with him. And his life began to slowly turn around. And as his inner life got healing, as the disorderliness of his inner life started to become more orderly and become more harmonious and to be restored, what happened is his external life started to come together. That's the way it goes. Things outside started to come together. And by God's grace, he actually got to a point where one of his novels got picked up and, uh, by Clint Eastwood and was turned into a, a major movie. It was an amazing breakthrough as his life began to get in order. There was one counseling session he had later on in the process. They're talking about some really particularly ugly things that happened to him as a child, particularly dark things. And Andrew started laughing uncontrollably, doubled over, laughing uncontrollably. And he could barely speak because he couldn't stop laughing. Eventually, he got himself under control enough, even still laughing a bit, and said to his counselor, like, what's happening? What is this? Why is this happening? Why am I laughing? And the counselor said, he said, this is who you really are. It had been buried away for so long. But this is it. This is who you really are. Andrew started exploring faith. He started meeting with a local pastor as well, who became another source of counsel and advice to him. He's, one night he was reading a novel. And in that novel, one of the characters said a prayer. And he, this thought occurred to him. He thought, well, if that guy can pray, maybe I can pray. And he thought back to the peace that he'd experienced through therapy. And so he prayed this prayer. He said, thank you, God. It was just a prayer of thanks. Thank you, God. And then he started building this prayer habit. He didn't know how to pray. He wasn't from a religious family. So he started building this prayer habit. After about a year of praying, I think it was about a year, he then thinks to himself, well, maybe I should ask God something. And he says, well, God, what do, you, what do you want me to do? And the answer came back, very surprising, was be baptized. And he thought, oh no, that's the last thing I was expecting or wanted to do or thought to do. And at the age of 49, Andrew fully and completely gave his life to Christ and was baptized. In total, he had five years of counseling. His counselor helped him helped to restore his mind to sanity so that he could trust his perceptions of reality because he felt like he had gone mad. His trauma had just confused things so much. And so he even says, he says he, don't, he doesn't think he could have found faith in Christ if he hadn't first had his sanity restored to him so that he could actually trust his own faculties and his own mind as he explored the Bible and as he looked into faith and looked into being baptized and as he started to pray. And that's the, the power of a gifted counselor or a gifted coach, somebody who can bring clarity to help you think straight about this, and that's what Jesus does. Jesus is the wonderful counselor who gives us clarity of mind. He leads us towards the light. He comforts us in our pain, and he heals our wounds. And how does he do it? How does Jesus do all of this? Jesus, he said he'd do it, by going to the cross on our behalf. The cross is the moment of all the worst pain and evil, all of humanity's wickedness and sinfulness being poured out 
on one person. And Jesus says, I'll do it in your place. And so in the process of counseling, a counselor will sit us down and say, pour out your past. Tell me what happened. Tell me your experiences. Tell me your past. Tell me your trauma. Tell me what happened to you. Let me learn and understand. And Jesus does the same thing. But instead of just listening and hearing, you know what he does? He sits in our chair and he cries all the tears that we've ever cried. And he experiences all the pain that we've ever experienced, all the things we've ever done wrong. And he switches places with us. He, sw- he switches places. No counselor does that. No counselor says, let's switch places. I'll be you today. And I'll have your pain today. That doesn't happen. They help transfer the pain off of us. But the only person we can put it onto is Christ. It goes onto Christ and only onto Christ. And on the other side of the cross, once you get the revelation of what Jesus has done for you, that he's taken all your pain, all your shame, all your sin on the cross, on the other side of the cross is such joy and such hope that you have purpose to live for now, that your life matters. You're not just a waste of space using up resources in a world that's going to destroy itself. God has come with his kingdom, and he's building a new kingdom, and you're an agent. You're a person in that kingdom who has a divine calling to bring healing to a broken world, to restore what has been lost. That's why you're here. That's why you're alive. That's why God's put breath in your lungs. And that's why we worship. We need to sing to Jesus. We need to worship him and thank him for all he's done. Turn our hearts to him. For him to heal us. Today, let's not forget that it is only through the cross that our sin is taken, it's transferred from us, all of our pain, all of our trauma, and the power that we need to forgive those who have sinned against us. Maybe you had a parent like Andrew, or a sibling, or another adult in your life like Andrew had, and maybe you need to forgive them. Only Christ can help you do that.